most traditional humanitarian way of working looks at outputs. With SLR, you can achieve outcomes. Or you can really uh, achieve transformational change. So we can really use humanitarian funding in a different way, allowing people to run their own response. It's effective, it's efficient, and it really allows people to be dignified and own their own response. Hello and welcome to the Evidence for Development podcast. We explore methods and evidence developed and used in the Global South to shape policy and improve lives. I'm Suzanne Fisher-Murray and I'm your host. If you're interested in research, knowledge exchange and learning related to international development, then this podcast is for you. Today, we would like to welcome Dorare Goncesalesa from Indigenous Resource Management Organization based in Marsabit County in Kenya, and Simone Di Vicenzi, the head of humanitarian policy, practice, and advocacy from Christian Aid. So, Simone, to start off with, can you paint a picture for us of what happens when a tsunami or a typhoon hits? How are most humanitarian responses currently launched? So, when there is a crisis of any sort, generally the sector, the humanitarian sector, starts with a needs assessment. So. There's a, either a national organization or an international organization coming to the affected area. And with their needs assessment, try to understand what are the gaps, what is missing, uh, and what are the needs that the population have. They're called multi-sectorial assessments. So they, they look at uh, food, uh, shelter, according to the various sectorial needs defined by the humanitarian context. Then they go back, uh, they leave the, the area. They design a proposal. The ones that are lucky have already some pre-positioned stocks, so they are able to deploy those stocks of food, water, or shelter in the affected area. So going back and start the delivery of the, of the program. But generally, we design a proposal. We submit it to the donor. When the donor, like, for example, Christiane works quite a lot with, with Start Network, with their Start Fund, they get approval for the funding. And the, the proper response starts with mostly logistics, where uh, the, the organization is delivering the items that are needed in that specific context. In particular, the, the timing between the crisis and when the relief, the proper relief of distribution of items happens is between five to seven days. There's a bit of a gap between the, the day of the crisis and the actual start of the relief intervention. Uh, when we do cash programming, you still need to do a needs assessment, a markets assessment, are the markets functioning and trying to understand what is the basket. And then the, the cash distribution happens. So there is still a gap between five to 10 days between the crisis and the proper start of the intervention of relief. So could you tell us a little bit about what survivor and community-led response is and how might it be different from the process that you've just outlined now? Yes, from quite a lot of research done, uh, particularly by Local to Global Protection, starting in 2009, but also more recently by other uh, researchers and uh, think tanks. What we notice, and it's uh, obvious, when there is a crisis, people are not really just waiting the five, six days for an externally led response for other people to help uh, themselves. They just start doing something. It's quite normal. It's quite intuitive, I think. The case of the, the COVID in the West is quite important, like everybody, the solidarity, everybody start doing something. So 
So the first big assumption is that the first responders are always the community themselves and often are the last one. And they're doing something. So the big difference of uh, SLR uh, in particular is the fact that it builds on what is already happening. Externally-led interventions are mostly looking at what is missing with a needs assessment, while survival-led response really tries to to build and strengthen what is already happening spontaneously by survivors themselves. So it has a completely different spin from a a bit more, uh, allow me, traditional way of uh, responding to crisis. With this in mind, we, as Christian Aid uh, and part of Local to Global Protection, together with uh, Dante Chase and Church of Sweden, we started in 2015, tried to find a way to plug into that energy and um, that self-help. And we brought in different tools and techniques coming from the development, security, peace building, to design uh, an approach which allows external actors, which could be also national organizations, just maybe not working in that specific affected area, to really build and strengthen what is already happening. And it is made by six major components or, or blocks. And the goal of the approach is really to help uh, strengthen the self-help of communities. And the first block is to start to work with a group of volunteers, the ones that are already that want to help their own community that they become the eyes and ears and voice of the community themselves. So they become the interaction between the community, the affected community and the externally agency, which we generally call the facilitation agency. And um, they go around exploring what are people already doing in that specific village, who would be cleaning the road, um, rehabilitating the houses, and flag this spontaneous initiative to the facilitating agencies. But also they play quite an important role in communication between the facilitation agency and the community themselves. So it's a very decentralized and uh, diluted communication channel, but also accountability channel. And also because it also works horizontally, it links different groups sharing knowledge. So for example, if a group is a group of people of survivors are doing something that might be useful to another part of the village, they link up. So sharing knowledge and information is their uh, primary uh, function. The core of the approach is, and it's the main aspect of it, if you want to really empower people to address their own need, there is a transfer of power. So we provide a series of micro-grants to groups made by more than three families as a minimum that have a specific joint need and they address their own needs by themselves. Just to give you an example, it could be a group of families who have lost the, the houses because of a typhoon. They might need building materials, so they apply for building materials. And we just provide the cash and they go and buy the materials and conduct the reconstruction themselves. Another key important aspect of SLR is capacity strengthening the groups. One key aspect is to help them and mentor them to uh, manage the grant, so financially, procurement, but also basic bookkeeping, and also finalize the reporting, but also bringing new skills. It could be a skilled engineer to rehabilitate a house or clean an irrigation scheme. Any technical aspect can be built on the, on, uh, the group. Another aspect, um, a component of SLR, it's uh, coordination. It's quite important to link up the groups horizontally uh, to share knowledge and learning in particular. Then we also need to link them to external actors 
So uh, SLR, it's a nice approach that can complement quite nicely uh, externally-led intervention. So link them up where, with uh, additional funding or opportunities with other actors is quite important. And finally, a key component is the change of roles. Now, with, with this type of approach, the facilitation agency is not doing the work. It's not doing the distribution, the needs assessment. Everything's done by the community. So the facilitating agency changed roles to mentor the groups to achieve their objective of their micro project. Great. And um, could you talk through what you feel are the important benefits of this approach, of the survivor and community-led approach? Why do you think local civil society organizations are so important for responding to humanitarian situations? Okay, so those are two uh, slightly different aspects. If we look at specific at the approach, we have seen that, first of all, it is context-specific. It can be adapted quite a lot to various different contexts. Uh, we have tested it between Philippines, Myanmar, Gaza, West Bank, Kenya, Sudan, Ethiopia, Central Africa Republic, DRC, and Haiti. So we have quite a broad experience of using this type of approach. And in each of the places, it can be co-designed and adapted to not only the skills of the facilitation agency, the strengths, but also to the context, being conflict, flooding, cultural aspects, anything can be adapted. The first benefit, and uh, the most important one, is that it can work at speed. We had the SLR approach working in the Philippines after a typhoon on day zero of the, um, of the crisis. If the facilitation agency already has funding in their bank account, they're able to distribute microgrants on day zero. So cutting those five, six days of the traditional externally-led uh, response uh, you can understand in, in a particularly in, in, in crisis context, it's, it's important. The second big aspect is that traditional way of uh, responding it is a little bit of a blanket distribution, meaning, okay, you, you can have some specific needs per categories, but of course, people are very different. But microgrants really allow some bespoken uh, addressing of needs. We're all different. We have different needs. Even if we're neighbors, uh, we might have different social, cultural categories. But even within the same groups, we might have very, very different. We have been, might be impacted by in a very, very different way. So the bespoken aspect is quite crucial. When a survivor applies for microgrants, they ask for money for something that they decide and they need. And this is quite an important element of the empowerment and, and dignity because they won't ask for nothing that they don't need because it's your money. So you really value the transfer and that allows to have very, very little uh, fraud or misuse of funds because uh, why you should ask for money for something that you don't need? It doesn't make any sense. It's very bespoken. It uh, allows a lot of ownership of the intervention. In particularly, it, it gives agency. It also helps uh, in um, the solidarity element, having the difference between household cash, with, where we are supporting individual, either in individuals or households versus a group, is that people need to start working back together. And that helps to reconstruct those social networks that exist in any community that maybe, maybe during a crisis they get broken down. So it is a push to work together and maybe address community needs instead of your individual needs. And 
we saw two other aspects. One, they're very inclusive. The groups are spontaneously inclusive. Of course, they're not perfect and they, a lot can be, can be improved. However, we saw that if I'm part of a group and in my family I have a person with disability, living with disability, of course, his needs or her needs, I will consider them. So it will be part of the, the objective of the group. So we saw that generally most groups are uh, very, very inclusive. They address a wide variety of needs that look at both the short term, but also at the long term. Another very important aspect is that women take the leadership in these processes. Almost everywhere across uh, the globe, we've been testing it. It's women that actually see uh, this type of approach effective for the, uh, meeting their needs. And uh, they take the leadership. So the majority are either uh, groups led by women or fully women uh, groups. That allows also to change uh, some, um, let's say, traditional stereotypes of uh, roles of women, especially in the more conservative societies. It can also work at scale. The beauty of it is that it's very modular. So according to the, the funds available, can absorb quite a lot of funds in a very fluid and effective way. On that last point, uh, you're saying that it, it works at scale. Just to make sure I've understood. So would you mean that if there was a larger amount of funding, you would still be distributing micro-grants, but just more of those micro-grants within a certain region? Yes, of course, in, in any place affected by a crisis, the needs are very high and very diverse. So it is really a matter of amount of funds available. For example, in Haiti, during the recent earthquake in August of last year, all our funds for a Christian Aid Appeal has been distributed through Group Cash Transfer of, or SCLR. So it can really work at scale. Or, for example, as in uh, Myanmar in 2009, uh, after a, a quite large typhoon, the country was still under the junta. So all international NGOs could not access the affected area for quite a few months. So the first responders were local civil society that used the same type of mechanism and approach. And they were able to absorb up to $2 million US dollar in a matter of two months, just in small micrograms, but very, very effective. So, Dorari Gonchesalesa, you are the Executive Director of Indigenous Resource Management Organization, or IREMO, which is an NGO in Marsabit County in northern Kenya. Can you paint a picture for us about what Marsabit County is like? How does it look like? What are some of the issues facing people in the area? Marsabit County is uh, located in northern Kenya, bordering with Ethiopia and other counties of arid and semi-arid. Marsabit is mostly inhabited by pastoralists, and I would say that 80% of the communities that live in Marsabit County are pastoralists. They depend on livestock for their livelihood, and the area is uh, mostly affected by frequent drought and also insecurity as a result of intertribal conflict. What is the cause of that intertribal conflict, Dorai? The cause of intertribal conflict is as a result of scarce natural resources. That is a one, one major reason. But also at the same time, communities are also 
trying to fight over land because the land is communally owned. And because of the movement from one place to another in search of pasture and water, when they come together, they, when they come closer to one another, because everyone wants, you know, green pasture and water for their livestock, that is where they start fighting each other. And sometimes this has caused death of uh, people and also livestock stolen. So... As you know, in this podcast, we've been talking a lot about an approach that you and Simone have used, which is very much about locally led responses to humanitarian disasters. And the approach is SCLR. I know that you told me that you were trained in this emerging approach by Christian Aid in 2017. I was wondering if you could talk about how you've used survivor and community-led response approaches within northern Kenya in your work. It's true I've been trained on supporting or survivor and community-led response in 2017. And as a result of the training that we received, we started using that particular knowledge and skills that we have gained to help our communities to do differently from the way they have been doing or responding to crisis much earlier. And to do this, what we have done is that we first of all trained our staff so that they internalize the approach. And secondly, we started engaging the community members because because we feel that if we have to do it all alone, then the approach is just meant for the organization. And as an organization, we piloted with the community members, making them to have you know, a change of mind and also a change of heart. And we know that they have been responding to crisis all along. But because of a presence of international NGOs or the presence of local NGOs, their idea of doing things on their own has been forgotten. So this is like SCLR, which is supporting community-led response, is to help communities to take lead in their own initiative, in their own responses, with a little support from the local or international NGO. So that's a really interesting point, perhaps, People had forgotten how to respond locally. Yes, you know, long time ago, people used to depend on each other. They, they used to support each other. But the support which they receive from either the NGOs, that is civil society organization, has made them, you know, like silent. It's like they are waiting everything to be done by other actors. And we know that whether the communities, I mean, whether the NGOs are there or not, sometimes they do things by themselves. Of course, it will come at a point where the drought is so much severe that they could not do anything by themselves. Then that time we need to chip in. But the strength that has been there, the capacity that has been there, the people themselves, you know, the leadership, and also the, the thing like accountability, they have been doing it. 
And so we are trying to bring all these good things back so that on one hand, we have community doing things by themselves. On the other hand, when we feel that they need some, some support, that will make them to move forward. That is the time when we come in as an organization. Dore, could you give me an example of how you have used this approach, the survivor and community-led approach in your region? For the last three seasons, it has not rained in Marsabit County. Since October 2020, it has not rained and it is so dry. The drought is quite severe. And uh, as an organization, we say now we need to use the knowledge and the skills that we have. You're saying that there has been no rain at all in Marsabit County since 2020. It is now oh, 2022. Yes. Maybe if I have to explain, in Kenya, there are two rainy seasons. It normally rains in uh, March, May. That is long rainy season. And then we also have short rain, which is between October to December. So we have two rainy seasons. The short rain of 2020, that is for the October, we did not receive rain. The long rain of 2021 and the short rain of 2021, we did not also receive. So this is basically three rainy season has failed. That must be very, very difficult. It, it, it's, it's very difficult. And uh, we are in a severe situation because the livestock are dying because these are pastoralist community. They, they depend on livestock. Livestock depend on pasture. If there are no pasture, you will imagine how that life would be for the livestock. And if the, live, the body condition of the livestock are weak, nobody will buy from them. So there is no money for the communities to buy food in order to make their community, I mean, their, their families to survive. It has been very, very difficult. And as an organization, we worked very closely with international NGOs, such as DKH, that is Diakone, Kenya, where they supported us with cash grant to make sure the community groups identify a project that will benefit the wider community, which is a component of SCLR that is supporting community-led response. We gave them the opportunity for them to sit down with other community members. This is now the group members to identify a project of their choice. They sent to us with the budget and we received a lot of so many proposals, but we selected a few of them. And one of the projects which we supported, a group of 15 women, they are based in an outskirt of a major trading center called Kalacha. This is a, a, a pastoralist village with no single shops. So they normally walk all the way, 15 kilometers to buy food stuff. But the women said, because women are also, they are not strong enough, you know, to, to walk 15 kilometers. The donkey which they depend on to, to load their, any, any load, any, you know, like food stuff, which they normally go and buy, they can no, no longer carry. Camel is the same, they no longer carry. So they said the best is, as women group, they get that money with the request from our organization so that they can buy food from the truck, 
which pass along, you know, that road. So they bought that food that is maize, beans, cooking oil, sugar, and uh, milk. So they made this one available. And they have been selling this food stuff to community members without, you know, adding any profit. So for them, it is just to buy food, sell it to the community members, and also to buy again. And this has really assisted, especially the women, to save their time, to use their time on other productive work. And at the same time, the food is also available in the village. And number three, even if you don't have money at that particular time, and you may ask for, let's say, credit like two days, it is available. The food is there. At least that family will not sleep hungry. And fourthly, this has really uh, made the women to be visible in that community members because the idea of buying food and selling has come from them. And you had mentioned as well that this is also helping uh, vulnerable members of the community. So you said as well that there are members of the community who, you know, you said they have they before they had to walk 15 kilometers. That's that's really far. And if you are elderly or if you have a disability, then that would be very difficult to do. Yes, yes, you are right. Because, of course, not all the family members are equal. Others are persons living with disabilities, elderly people, expectant mothers, breastfeeding mothers. So if you look at all these categories of of, uh, people, I will say this has really assisted because if you are an expectant mother walking that distance, may not be easy. When do you go to, to the 15 kilometers, then you come back home and prepare food? So availability of that food has really helped. I would say it is better because, you know, normally the, the traditional ways of giving support to community members is buying food, buying relief food, to their, and, and distributing them to the affected families or to the poor households. And sometimes, you know, they give a cash, cash transfer uh, to the household level. When we talk of SCLR, the SCLR is uh, much better because the power to make a decision lies with the community. And equally, we, we said that when you give uh, support to community groups, they act like a small uh, NGO within their community members. And they know who is most vulnerable, unlike local NGOs or, or, or even international NGO, They don't know who is uh, most poor. It is uh, cost-effective also, because if the money, if the fund is given to the community groups, you use less money and you cover more, more people because there is no administration cost of, you know, hiring vehicle to go and see what is being done. The evaluation, the monitoring, and the reporting is done by the community facilitators who are who acts like a link between the organization and the community members. Secondly, uh, the social benefit. The community groups are together than ever before. That they say this is our project. The group feels like you know when you give them the responsibility to do things, that you are engaging them. You are discussing with them. You are making them to make a decision. 
and to see what can be done more by the government. Ask questions. The, the, the duty bearers, why is it that this place, this area has no water? So it goes beyond, you know, just that particular time when during crisis. It's, it's, it's a transformational change. The change is with them. And what about concerns that some INGOs, so some international non-governmental organizations might have around mismanagement of funds? Of course, uh, you are right. Things may go wrong. Sometimes there might be mismanagement. And when we train our facilitators, that is community facilitators, when we, when we train them, we also train them on things that may go wrong in terms of financial management so that they are always conscious of what is going to happen. And secondly, we normally emphasize that this is their money. It is not Iremos money. It is not Christian aid money. This is their money and they are supposed to take care of every single sense, just like the way they take care of their livestock. They will not make, you know, their livestock to go astray. So equally, although this money is given to the group members, for them to implement a project on behalf of the community members, they need to watch over how that particular money is being used. So we normally make things clear. We don't deal with only that smaller group. Although the money is given to the smaller group, we make it open and tell them that this is the proposal that we received and they want to do A, B, C, D so that they can be, you know, like watching over. I think that's a really good point, Dorai, that you that you made there about, you know, that this is their money at the end of the day. And if it's your money, it's your, if it's your livestock, yes. you are going to care for it very carefully. So it's a very interesting point. So just moving on then to whether or not you could provide another example within another context, a completely different context that helps to illustrate approaches that communities have adopted. I know that it's also been, for instance, adopted within Gaza and you've spoken about Haiti. Do you do you have uh, another example? Myanmar was another example of of, of perhaps a, a very different approach that was taken within a different context. Yes, certainly. In uh, Myanmar, we were working with Karen Baptist Church or KBC in uh, Karen State. So, could you paint a picture just for for people who don't know? Could you paint a picture as to where Karen State is within Myanmar? Yes, it, it, it's in the southeast on the border with Thailand, and it's a beautiful landscape made of rice fields uh, and a, a bit of mountainous area. It is also a contested area between uh, the Karen Ari, Army and the Junta. So it is administratively managed by what are called the rebel groups, by the Junta. So it, it is quite a, an interesting uh, place mostly politically, uh, but it is an area of armed conflict, active armed co- conflict. And um, Christian Aid, t- together with KBC, the Karen Baptist Church, uh, we have been working in the same area on with an approach that Christian Aid calls resilience, which is basically a community development risk-informed, so in a nutshell, 
the community does uh, an analysis of the risk and develop some action plan to address the risk. So that project was ongoing for quite some years and it actually finished. And um, the community had developed some action plans, some development plans, if you want to call them. When uh, we were starting to adopt uh, SCLR in Myanmar, we worked with KBC. And at that time, KBC decided to work in the same village. And despite considered a crisis, it's not a traditional humanitarian crisis in that context. The, the community said, like, our, our priority is pest infestation. They have a rust infestation, which was eating all their rice fields. Uh, and that was a crisis. So it's not a humanitarian crisis as we will define it, but it is a huge crisis. You know, when, when we speak about humanitarian, it's always difficult to label it. Uh, we work very much on sectors. So what is it? Is it food security or is it a developmental issue? What is it? SCLR, instead of for how it works, it doesn't have prejudice of what people are doing or what they need. So just with this simple method, instead of working with subgroups within the village, the village got together and said, no, the, the number one priority is pest infestation. So we really need to address that. So they adapted the model, very different from, from Haiti that I just explained, to a bit more uh, community cohesion process. And they decided the number one project and need that they had, which was pest infestation. And they used all the funds. And instead of having many micro-grants, they grouped all uh, the funds available on one larger grant to address a wider community need uh, addressing rat infestation which, again, uh, in any humanitarian intervention, they will never fund that type of intervention because it's not fitting in any particular sector. Another uh, example I would like to showcase is uh, the work of Christian Aid together with the CFTA, which stands for Culture and Free Truth Association, based in, in Gaza. Gaza, as you know, has been on, ongoing blockage from the Israeli since 2012 where life is quite complicated. It is urban context, densely populated, with very limited resources for business or ag agriculture, and um, very limited uh, services from electricity or health. CFTA took uh, a slightly different angle to it, again, just really adapting it to the context. And uh, what they saw is, was really the role of the volunteer as a, as a key driver. Instead of looking at the microgrant as the key driver for change and uh, addressing needs, they really saw the uh, volunteer aspect as the, the key one. And the reason is because the society in Gaza is quite fragmented and uh, disillusioned because the, the context is so it's not really allowing to aspire for a better life. Quality of life has been going down and down. And um, the society is really broken down. So they see that activism, uh, not voluntarism, as a great opportunity to give uh, hope uh, and agency to especially the young people. So they really work quite a lot in the training and the motivation of the volunteer, which they call the protection groups. And they're all immobilizing the wider society around certain ideas. So they took a key role in going around their own administrative area, organize meetings, bring out elders, local leaders around some important uh, small intervention that might benefit the wider community. So not themselves, but really benefiting the wider community. 
And they came out with some really, really brilliant ideas, as simple as electricity, solar electricity for the roads, so to increase safety, uh, so people can go around at night with more safety, not there's a lot of holes, potholes, so it's, it's safer, but also, you know, dogs or women are a bit more uh, at ease. But by really engaging quite a lot uh, their own village in Gaza. They brought in also the local authority and the private sector. So despite a very small investment from our side, which was in the order of £60,000, they were able to leverage $150,000 of contribution, both monetary, but also in kind. For example, yes, the, the, the local shops were contributing with, with items, giving them a, a, a better rate, just because everybody was contributing. So it became a kind of a, yeah, social movement, uh, in a way, just really recreating the cohesiveness and passion around and re-establishing the, the, the traditional solidarity that the Gaza and the Palestinian society had that has been eroded in time. I think that you touch upon something very interesting there, which is that, you know, that that small contribution made by Christian Aid was then sort of matched by other maybe corporate, you know, businesses or organizations. And also that it, it, it built further solidarity within the community. So this idea that it's sort of a snowball effect that, you know, you start with these small things, but that it has a much larger effect in terms of both building social cohesion, but also potentially leading to wider impact because other groups then get involved and support the efforts. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's quite a, uh, an important point. And uh, specifically, I think in protracted crisis, that is an as- aspect that is fundamental. And I think a traditional way of working on, of either humanitarian, because the type of fund is mostly humanitarian in a protracted crisis or peace building are really missing the togetherness element and the, um, the working together, re-establishing values and, uh, and principle of community that has been ongoing uh, through distress for a decade. And one good example, I think, from uh, from that experience, it's they've been discussing in uh, in their uh, town hall meetings. One of the big problems is that the houses were so as space is quite important in Gaza. The space is so small; they, they have no way to expand. The houses start eroding the the streets, no? and uh, the the ambulance could not actually pass by. And this really youth led process made people understand that they could, cannot keep on expanding on the road. And they were and people understood, uh, so took away the, their own personal interest as a family and bulldozed the part of the the house to take it back to the original length of, of the road, so the ambulance could actually pass. So when you explain and you engage the wider community and you, you, you really are able to identify the wider community benefit of intervention, a lot of people are happy to reduce their own, their own benefit, in that case it's house, uh, physical space, to allow a more broader community benefit. So I think it's, it's quite a powerful image. And CFTA now has expanded this program in different villages with a different type of funding and they have mainstream SCLR in the ways of working. And interestingly, when talking to them, they were saying, hey, we thought we know enough about the areas where we work, but actually with SCLR, it gave us a completely different entry point uh, 
to the same village and we learn so much more and the trust between the survivors or the, the, the residents and CFTA is way much stronger. Another nice quote is that at the um, before we started working with the SCLR approach, they didn't really trust the community to be able to manage funds. Uh, instead, afterwards, they were surprised how well they did. Actually, they they over uh, overdid, uh, bringing in way much more money than we actually put in. So that's that's one of my questions for you. So you have talked a bit about some of the myths associated with survivor and community-led responses. And some of those myths have included that it, you know, it would take more time because you're working with community groups and this is very time-consuming. And also you've spoken about concerns over mismanagement of funds, you know, that that these local groups might be, you know, be groups that, that should be trusted to manage the funds effectively. So I was wondering what you would say to dispel or you know rebut those myths, if if they are myths. I think they are myths. <laughs> I think they're more prejudice than uh, than myth. In particular, on the slowness, uh, we have demonstrated that by practice, not by theory, that it can be quite quick. Specifically in places uh, with fast onset, like in the Philippines. And uh, in Haiti, uh, during the earthquake, we were really able to start responding very, very soon. The Guinness is, of course, EcoWeb in the Philippines, which is a very promising organization, that they were able to start distributing microgrants on day zero of a typhoon, which uh, never happened. So it can be done quite quickly. I guess the, the in a new, completely new area, where uh, if you're working with a facilitating agency uh, that is not aware of SCLR, SCLR can, can be uh, training or co-design. We call it co-design because we're really co-designing the approach together with the partner. It takes three days. So once that is covered, the staff can, can start going in the affected area and start uh, distributing, not distributing, but uh, advertising the opportunity. So it is just the time for the groups to put their head together. We have seen uh, uh, that in particular in Haiti, the groups were able to not only identify their needs and apply for uh, for uh, funding, but also uh, limit, implement their uh, projects in 45 days, which is the start fund. In Lebanon, we were able to access Irish aid funds for three months, and that was, again, similar. In that case, we were starting from zero with a partner, and we were able to train the partner. They opened a call for proposal for microgrants and close all the project in three months. So it, it is completely comparable to a more traditional way of working, which, again, depending on the agency, can take between five and ten days to start. Just flipping things on its head for a minute, what is the biggest challenge that you think is facing locally-led response? Well, the biggest challenge, uh, in my opinion, is the lack of trust in uh, local actors, uh, not only in a uh, national organization, but also in uh, to community themselves. And as I mentioned before, for Gaza, it was even the, the national organization, sometimes they don't trust uh, the population themselves to manage properly funds. Uh, so I think specifically the humanitarian uh, sector became hyper-technocratic, but also it lost that element of trust, of trusting that people will be doing the, the right thing. 
that is the biggest challenge, in my opinion. Uh, in, in particular, within uh, when we present the SCLR to various organizations, it's the development ones that are more receptive because it's very developmentally in terms of tool. They can see it, understand it, and they, it's the development organization that are taking the humanitarian space. While the humanitarians are so used to their own way of work that it's for them quite difficult to unlearn and change mindset. We had some incredible good successes, but that's a, a bit um, the, the control. And if we look at donors in Myanmar, we tried SCLR with ECHO, which is the humanitarian department of the European Union, but they were still wanted to see how we will be spending the money of the microgrants, which is, of course, impossible because you don't know what's, what, what is the people's priority. You can have a general understanding, but you cannot really detail exactly how the, the penny is spent because that's the flexibility uh, that people require in a crisis context. So there are some issues from the donor side that we tend to cascade down, uh, which are problematic. But I think the biggest blockage is the mentality and the culture, specifically within the humanitarian sector. So what would be your advice to the wider humanitarian sector, you know, to bureaucrats, to officials, to, you know, to workers who really want to do the absolute best that they can for the communities that they are trying to serve. What would be your advice in terms of what they could be doing to make progress on localization, on having increased locally-led responses to humanitarian disasters? What would be your key advice to them? Well, uh, a lot of uh, the majority of donors have committed to the grand bargain, which is uh, looking at increasing the efficiency of the humanitarian sector. But pillars of it, it's really quality funding and localization. So not only funding directly national organizations, but also strengthening their own capacity and giving them long-term, so multi-year funding and flexible. That is a good start. However, I think we by now we know that there are practices like SCLR is one of many that really allows national organization to be even more engaged and allowing the survivors to run their own response. So really allowing this, uh, the first responders, the real first responders, which are the survivors, to lead the response. I would say that we need to engage in new practices, being open, try to be less risk averse, and allow this type of practices to to be embedded a bit more and uh, recognized uh, within the sector because they do work, they are efficient, uh, they cost less, they can be very decentralized, we can really reach the most vulnerable and try to be less uh, controller of uh, the final output. And I think that the, the final point that I really strongly would like to make is that most of humanitarian, traditional humanitarian way of working looks at outputs, you know, number of items distributed. With SCLR, you can achieve outcomes. Or you can really uh, achieve transformational change. So it is another value. So we can really use humanitarian funding in a different way to achieve gender transformation, peace building, or however you want to call it. Allowing people to run their own response. It's effective, it's efficient, uh, and it really allows people to be dignified and own their own uh, response. In particular, I think it's important to work through national organization with this type of approach because 
it's not only about meeting basic need again outputs but it's a, a matter of strengthening local civil society that goes beyond just uh, responding to a specific uh, crisis it, uh, national civil society that are so important for a healthy state to challenge for a democratic state and so we need to it's the role of national civil society it's so so important because it's so much under threat in these last years globally so it is our mandate as international civil society to really work in solidarity with national organizations to help them be in solidarity with survivors at the very end. Thanks so much, Simone Andrari, for taking the time to speak with us today about survivor and community-led response. It's been fascinating. Thanks so much. Thank you very much, Suzanne. Yeah. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Evidence for Development podcast. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to find out more about any of the research we've discussed, please check the episode notes for more information and links. 